Okay, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Last Sunday in verses uh, 5 to 25, we saw the angel Gabriel appear in the holy place to an elderly priest to announce the birth of a son named John who would prepare the way for salvation to come to Israel. We saw that uh, this son, would him, as he was promised, would himself be the fulfillment of ancient promise. We also saw Zechariah, the elderly priest here, struggling with unbelief, giving in to uncertainty, and demanding a sign of proof. And so we saw then what his unbelief cost him. Just as he had demanded something to see, because he refused to hear the word of the Lord, so he wouldn't be able to hear, and he wouldn't be able to speak himself until this promise was fulfilled. So even when he emerged from the holy place after offering the prayers on behalf of the nation during that hour of incense, it was customary that he would then speak blessing over the people. But his ministry was cut short because of his unbelief. There are um, a lot of points of comparison in this particular scene, verses 5 to 25, and the scene that's going to receive our concentration today. Broad points of comparison. But when we begin to look at the details, we're going to notice these very striking contrasts between John and Jesus, between Zechariah and Mary and the announcement and, and everything. So there are broad points of similarity, but also striking uh, contrasts in the details. And that's what we will see as we uh, read this together, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, pregnancy who was wife of Zechariah, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
and the angel departed from her. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we study together this narrative of Luke's given to him by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, it is easy, Father, for us to get distracted by Zechariah and by Mary, by the angel Gabriel, and certain details. It is easy for us to allow these individuals to upstage Jesus in our attention and our focus and even in our affection. I pray, Father, that you would give to us, according to the multitude of your tender mercies and according to your grace in Christ, give to us your Holy Spirit now in fullness that our eyes may be opened and fixed upon your Son. I pray that he would have all of our attention and all of our affection. We thank you for the accomplishment of our salvation in Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. It's in Him, Father, that we open up Your Word. It's in Him that we appeal to You and make this prayer. It's in Him we live. It's in Him we have righteousness before You. He is our all. In Him we ask these things and praise You. Amen. Let's, um, after, since we have read this narrative already, verses 26 to 38, let's talk about the broad similarities. And I'll let Philip Reich in one of, uh, he was a a pastor in Philadelphia for a long time. Um, I'm going to let him handle the similarities. He said, the births of both John and Jesus were announced by the same awesome angel who told both parties not to be afraid, proclaimed the birth of a son, gave each child his name, and explained his mission in life. And both John and Jesus were born to godly women who, apart from divine intervention, were unable to bear children. So just from one scene to the next, we see that there are these uh, announcements and the comings of John and Jesus are broadly similar. But there's also a lot of contrasts that are very significant. Even in the setting of the announcement and the figure, the person that the angel approaches. This is David Garland. He wrote, The scene shifts from sacred temple space in the holy city to a village of no consequence, far-flung nowheresville in Galilee. The prestige of the character the angel visits shifts from an elderly priest serving in the holy place to a young female with no status whatsoever. The question is, who is greater, John or Jesus? In the similarities, there, you know, we, we have to ask who is greater. But in the details of contrast, when we see the angel going from the holy city and the temple announcement to, as that author said, Nowheresville in Galilee to this young girl who's really just a peasant girl, we would almost think before 
you know, we actually know and get into the details of the text, we would think maybe the, the angel is going to announce to, to Mary that she is going to have a son that is going to serve Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. Jesus would serve John. But that's not the case, is it? Even though there is like a, there's a significant downgrade in a sense as the angel goes to Nazareth and to Mary. But who is greater, John or Jesus? Reading from Philip Ryken again. John's mother was barren. The mother of Jesus had never been with a man at all. John would be a prophet crying in the wilderness. Jesus would reign on David's everlasting throne. John would be, as the text said, great before the Lord. Jesus would be great without qualification the Son of the Most High God. John would prepare for God's coming. But when Jesus came, God was there in the flesh. Who is greater, John or Jesus? Jesus was like John. We see that in the points of comparison. But in the details, we see that Jesus is superior in every respect. Infinitely superior. I was asking the Lord a moment ago that these, um, these figures, Zechariah, Mary, Gabriel, would not be allowed to steal our attention away from Jesus, to upstage him in any way. Jesus must be the one to have our attention. I mean, Zechariah's story is fascinating. Gabriel is obviously pretty awesome. He's an angel. Stands in the presence of God. Mary is beautiful. She is an incredible individual with great faith. And it's easy to get drawn to the individuals and allow Jesus to be displaced, moved to the periphery. We must not allow that to happen. Why is Luke writing? Luke is writing for our certainty. Back in verse 4, right? That's what Luke said. He said that he's writing this orderly account for most excellent Theophilus, this high-ranking Gentile figure, some kind of nobleman. Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This is why Luke writes, for Theophilus and every generation of believers that will follow this first generation of the church. He is writing for our certainty. Where can we find the certainty of the greatness and the glory and the worth of our God? It's not in Zechariah. It's not in the character of Mary. It's not in the striking figure that's cast by Gabriel. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our attention and our affection must be seized by Christ And it's this stunning announcement from this angel. This promise of the one who was coming that must grab our attention in this text before us. If you have a good feel for the Old Testament, its history, its narrative, its promises, its longings, and so on. At this point in the history of redemption, in scriptural history, you're feeling, when is this going to happen? as is 
the cry often raised up throughout the story of the word, How long, O Lord? When is your salvation going to come? Now we're approaching this nativity scene. We're getting there. And now that salvation has come, let's not have our attention taken away by the various characters. Because when that happens, these events just turn into morality tales. And that's what happens when Jesus does not have center stage. And so we must keep the spotlight of the scriptures trained on Jesus Christ as the Lord most certainly intends. If we don't, I know I'm going on and on about this, but if if we don't and, and we get distracted in a sense, Luke, who wrote this, would be ticked off. And more importantly, the Holy Spirit, whose mission is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, he would most certainly be grieved. And so let's fix our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll learn from Zechariah, as we did last week, and we'll learn from Mary, as the Lord intends, but as we stay centered on Christ. Let's get into this then. Verses 26 and 27 again. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Mary is a very young girl in this story um, at this time. It was very common for a Jewish girl to be betrothed to her future husband at the mature age of 12 years old. They, The typical procedure would be that this man and girl would be betrothed for about a year, during which time the betrothal actually uh, bound them together legally so that Mary would have already been considered, in a legal sense, Joseph's wife. Now, during this year of betrothal, that doesn't mean they're married. During this year of betrothal, they're, they're apart, They're never intimate, and at the end of the approximately a year, they would have the marriage ceremony in which they were officially married, and then Joseph would have taken Mary into his into his home. Everything is quite normal in Mary's life. I mean, again, she lives, it says a city, but that's a generic word. It's really a village, think village, that's what Nazareth was. Um, it was a little out-of-the-way maligned place. Um, people didn't think much of Nazareth. And there she and Joseph and their families and so on are conducting a normal life in northern Israel in Galilee. And then an angel appears to her and disrupts everything. Can you imagine? The angel comes to her and says, Greetings. O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. There will be a few times in this narrative, I think this is the first of three times in the the birth infancy narrative of Jesus that will take us through the end of chapter 2, in which we're given insight right into Mary's thoughts. 
Luke has said that he has followed all things closely that had been accomplished among them for some time past. In other words, Luke is not just writing this on a whim. It's not being given to him out of thin air by the Holy Spirit. Rather, by the Holy Spirit's guidance, Luke has done significant research and investigation into all the things that were accomplished. I believe that Luke knew Mary. I believe that he sat down with her and recorded her reflections on her experience and her thoughts of these early days. He recorded all of these things for us in Luke 1 and 2. How did Mary feel? Well, knowing her Bible, and she does know her Bible, as we'll see in the next scene, which we won't get to today. But knowing her Bible, she knows that an angel from God doesn't just come and, and give greetings whenever. This is not by any stretch a regular occurrence. This is more like every few centuries kind of thing. And she also knows that an angel just doesn't just greet. That when an angel comes and gives greetings from the Lord, there is more, much more to come, and it's going to be significant. The angel will announce to the one being greeted that God is calling them into a specific and very significant ministry for the Lord. And why is she troubled? Troubled at the saying. It doesn't say she's troubled at Gabriel per se, but the saying, I think because she cannot possibly imagine what the angel is going to say next. Because again, who is Mary? By all the worldly standards, Mary is a nobody. A nobody. She's just a young girl, virgin girl, still unmarried, a peasant. No one. And so she cannot possibly imagine what she is going to be told. But the Lord doesn't see as man sees, and he doesn't give as man gives. The Lord has bestowed, poured out his grace on her. And the angel reassures her with these words, beginning in verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, so far, so good. Nothing too um, overwhelming. And then, with these next words, things absolutely take off like they have never taken off before. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now in verse 34, Mary, immediately following this word from the angel, she has a question. But before we get to the question, I believe that Mary, again, knowing her Bible, knows what this means. In fact, if a Jewish... Uh, if a godly Jew living in this day didn't know the significance of what the angel said, I mean, that's really just about unthinkable that they wouldn't know the significance of this. So I believe Mary knows what this means, and knowing what this means, I believe that, I imagine, I should say, I imagine she gasps at this stunning announcement. What does it mean? 
Just to put it concisely, to start, this means that she has been chosen of the Lord to bear the chosen of the Lord. That's what this means. It means that those seeds of promise that had long, long ago been planted were about to spring from the earth. It is about to be. It. I mean, this is everything. Everything in, in this is about to come to fruition. All of, all of what the Old Testament meant all that it pointed to, all that the saints longed for, all of the what we would call the types and the shadows, all the anticipations, the promises, the prophecies, all of it, it's about to be, finally. It's about to be. Let's step back about a millennium before Mary to the time of David. David was the second king of Israel. Uh, an incredible warrior, the warrior poet, the Lord's anointed, a man after God's own heart. After God had secured victory for David against the enemies that were surrounding him and given him peace, David set his heart after building a house for the Lord. He said, I have a house, a beautiful house, and the Lord has a tent. That's basically what the tabernacle was. Materially, it was a glorified tent. And David, a lover of God, wanted more for the Lord and his glory. He set his heart on building the Lord, the temple, a house. And the Lord came back to him through Nathan the prophet with the word, No, you're not going to build me a house. David, he said, I am going to build you a house. And by house, he doesn't mean a literal building slash structure. And then God gave to David with that no a tremendous yes. He gave him a promise, a covenant that we know as the Davidic covenant. And the climax of that covenant comes in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. And this is what the Lord promised for David and his heirs. He said, your house, that is dynasty, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Again, this is what we call the Davidic covenant. And you you really can't get a, a good feel for the Old Testament desire and hope and longing if you don't know this promise. It's huge. It's one of the hinges on which the whole Old Testament would turn. So now note back in the text which we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 33, that the angel uses the same three key terms as God delivered to David a millennium before. End of verse 32 and 33. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I believe, I imagine, again I should say, that Mary gasps when she hears this. That covenant was given to the nation in the 10th century. I want you to get a good feel for this though. In the 8th century, God spoke through Isaiah. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, Isaiah says, will do this. That was the 8th century. In the 7th century, through Jeremiah, the Lord spoke again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, think family tree, a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. How many names can one person receive? The Lord is our righteousness, is the name by which he will be called. And in the sixth century, through the prophet Daniel, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Gabriel appears to this young peasant virgin girl and promises these things concerning the throne of David and reigning over the house of Jacob and no end to his kingdom, her son that she will bear is the fulfillment of all these promises and all of the longing of the Old Testament people of God. Why a king? And especially why an earthly kingdom? Why doesn't God just escort us all up into the clouds of heaven and scrap this planet? You know, dissolve it completely or just throw it into some corner of the universe to be forgotten? Why an earthly kingdom? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, it says in Psalms. This is his planet, and he intends for it to be filled with the knowledge of his glory, just as, according to the prophet Habakkuk, just as the waters cover the seas. There is darkness here, deep darkness that does not belong, and it will not last the Lord will reclaim this earth. The God, small g, God of this age will be destroyed. The kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. And the Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, is announcing the inauguration of this kingdom through Mary's son. From the time of that promise to David a thousand years before, Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Syrians, the Parthians, and finally Rome, the pagan kings, all of them. But this young Nazarene woman is one of a godly remnant who is waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
And now she hears the announcement from this angel that it's coming. And I believe that she is absolutely stunned. I think she gasps, I, I said, because of the meaning of this and that she will have anything to do with it. Who would have dreamed? Mary responds, however, with, there's a problem. There's an issue. How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy. This child will be the Son of God. Mary is the vessel. Her womb will be the place for the person whose human nature was created by the overshadowing Holy Spirit, I'll submit to you, from nothing, and whose divine nature has always been. I know that sentence was a little clumsy. Let me say it again. I believe that she is the vessel. Her womb is going to be the place for the conception and the nurturing and the delivering into the world for the person whose human nature will be suddenly created by the overshadowing spirit of God from nothing and whose divine nature has always been. Human nature suddenly created, divine nature has always been. She will bear that person. Two distinct natures, divine and human, inseparably united in one person. At this conception, God the Son became a man in addition to being God. He was authentically human and he remains permanently human in addition to being God. I want you to think about this. Put it this way. At this conception, God the Son became a human zygote in addition to being God. The divine nature was united to a single microscopic human cell. And humanity was forever incorporated into the second person of the triune Godhead. Mind-boggling beyond all of our comprehension. And now the angel gives Mary a sign. Though she hasn't asked for one, the angel says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Zechariah, or Luke, I should say, has already highlighted for Theophilus and all of his readers a case of uncertainty. Zechariah was given the announcement of a son and he did not believe. Mary has every reason in the world for uncertainty. But she believes. She is certain of her God and his power and his faithfulness. 
She hears this word. Nothing will be impossible with God. And she responds in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. As we work to a close here, I want to home in on Mary's two of Mary's statements. First, back in verse 34, she said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Back in verse 18, when Zechariah had received the announcement of his son from Gabriel, Zechariah asked a similar question. He also asked a how question. That is, how shall I know? And literally it means, on what basis can I know? What is the difference between Zachariah's how question and Mary's how question? There's a significant difference, quite a gap. It's the difference between belief and unbelief, between certainty and uncertainty. This is what Zachariah wants. He wants something that the angel hasn't given him yet. All the angel has given to Zachariah is words. Zechariah wants more than hearing. He wants to see something. Mary, on the other hand, just wants more of the same. So Zechariah wants a sign, but Mary wants words. He wants a sign, she wants a word. And that's the difference between uncertainty in him and certainty in her. You understand, we are the people of the word. God has revealed himself to us by his word. And we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Signs are what the uncertain people demand from God. And they demanded it all the time from Jesus. And he was constantly turning them down. Whenever they said, give us a sign, he said, it's an unbelieving generation that asks for a sign. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. When Herod, not Herod the Great, but descendant, when Herod saw Jesus at his trial, He was very glad, it says, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping, what? To see some sign done by him. And what was Jesus' judgment to Herod? It says he did not answer him a word. He didn't give him a single word. Because Herod didn't want to hear the word of God. He wanted to see signs. Jesus said to Thomas, who had doubted when he heard that Jesus had risen and believed when he saw him, Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Peter blesses the believers. He says, though you have not seen him, You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. My question to you this morning, as we set these two scenes side by side and compare and contrast them, 
is how much do you need? What do you need to be faithful? What do you need to obey? Do you need signs? Intuitions? Feelings? Some kind of calm? Or is the Word of God enough for you? Those who are certain surrender themselves to the Word of the Lord. This is what Mary does. And this is the second thing that I wanted to look at that she says. She she has said, how can this be? Since I am a virgin, she's not asking for a sign. She wants more words. Now she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I think it sounds a lot like Isaiah long ago when he said, here am I, send me. Mary is saying, here am I. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Um, I, I don't keep up with uh, popular movies too much, and I don't keep up with popular music at all, unless a hit song comes from a Disney movie. Because <laughs> I got four kids, so I do keep up with what's going on with Disney movies. And um, one of our culture's hit songs of late came from a Disney movie. The movie itself, Frozen, is very good. The song called Let It Go, independent, taken out of the context of the story of the movie, is a terrible song. But the message of the song is to young girls, let's break free from rules and from limits. Let it all go. And embrace who you are. Embrace your dreams. Do what makes you happy. Let everything else go. And in the story of the movie, the results of that character letting it go and breaking free from rules and limits, it's a disaster. So in its context, okay. But out of context, this is what young girls are singing. Let it go. Rules, limits, and everything. Mary was, and Mary is, so counter culture because she does not say let it go but to the Lord who commands her let it be let it be to me according to your word because she is certain of the greatness of her God his power and his faithfulness let it be to me according to your word I have been, in my study this past week, so inspired, not my favorite word, challenged, convicted, encouraged by Mary. She is stunning. She is beautiful. You, it's almost like you think about this young teenage girl. You can't help but feel so proud of her in this sense as she presents herself to God without reservation, without restraint. And everything in her life has been upset. I mean, in the sense that it's all disrupted. She is willing, though, to put her wedding plans aside on the altar of sacrifice in order to do the will of God. Because she's not even told by Gabriel, and she doesn't even ask. What about Joseph? She doesn't ask. 
She's willing to put it all on the altar of sacrifice. Let it be to me according to your word. And so, what a word. What a word that we should take up and follow and say without reserve to the Lord in complete surrender. Let it be to me according to your word. And there's two things about that. I'm, I'm closing. Number one is this. We have this word from God that's revealed. These are the revealed things that God has given that belong to us and to our children forever. Deuteronomy 29. These are the things revealed. This is the word that we have heard. And we should respond. Let it be to me according to your word. I will follow. I will obey as you command me. But there's also another thing. Because there's a lot of details that Mary doesn't know. She doesn't know what's next. She is not planning two steps ahead. She has no clue. And there's that hidden will of God, not only the revealed and the heard, but the hidden, the unseen, the unheard, the secret things hidden in the the counsel of the will of God that Mary is saying to, let it be to me. Whatever it is, whatever it costs, let it be to me according to your word. And so, as we close this morning, I want to ask you, are you so certain of the greatness and the glory of your God, the trustworthiness of His Word, whether heard or unheard, that you will say, let it be to me according to your Word? If you are uncertain, Pray for a certain faith. And let everyone who is certain praise His name. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for Your faithfulness to uphold Your covenant promise to send Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth for the kingdom, for us, and for our salvation. I pray, Father, that our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ, we would grow in the certainty of our faith and worship Him and obey Your Son, our Lord Jesus, without reservation and say with our lives to every word that You speak over us, let it be to me, let it be to us, Lord, according to Your Word. If I should live, if I should die, if I should have health, if I should have sickness, if I will prosper or if I will struggle, may your word be fulfilled. Let it be to us according to your word. And may we have the certainty to follow regardless. In Christ's name we pray and for his sake, amen.